0: Hello and welcome to NodiCast, the podcast on nonlinear dynamics, the essential theory that governs pretty much everything on earth and beyond. I'm C. Nararaj of Villanova University, senior editor and host of NodiCast. NodiCast is an outreach of nonlinear dynamics the journal published by Springer Nature. Today is the premiere episode of Nodicast, and it concerns something that has touched most of the lives on this planet, the COVID-19 pandemic. At the time of the airing of this podcast, we've just started doling out vaccines to the 7.8 billion people on Earth more than 107 million people have been infected all around the world and we have lost more than 2.3 million to the virus. The economies of most countries have been severely affected and accurate modeling has never been more important. Already the nonlinear dynamics community has made many fascinating contributions to the modeling and analysis of the pandemic. In fact, we at the Nonlinear Dynamics Journal have published a special issue on the problem and currently have a call for a second special issue. Already many interesting papers have appeared that consider parametric and database modeling, compartmental and agent-based modeling and have studied stability, bifurcations, oscillations, as well as the effect of migration, social distancing, government policy, vaccinations and so on. First, we have a message from Professor Walter Larca of Sapienza University in Rome, the editor-in-chief of Springer Nature Journal, Non-EnoDynamics.
1: Today scientific discoveries
0: need to be shared as broadly as possible to have more cross-talking and societal impact. It is the story of connecting the dots in science, a story that can start even listening to a good podcast with interviews to top experts in the field. This is why I am very proud today to welcome the launch of the first episode of Nodicast, a series of podcasts on hot topics of nonlinear dynamics research. I owe a very special thank you to the editor of NoniCast, Professor CN Nataraj from Villanova University. Now, please enjoy the show. Hey, thanks for your nice words, Walter. Okay, folks, now let's get on with the podcast. Today, I'm honored to be chairing a panel discussion where we hope to delve into some of the fascinating insights nonlinear dynamics can provide into the behavior of the pandemic. Joining me are some distinguished guests. Professor Bala Balachandran, who is the Minta Martin Professor and Chair of Mechanical Engineering at University of Maryland, USA. Professor Gergely Rost, Associate Professor of University of Szeged in Hungary. Professor Jose Tenreiro Machado, Principal Coordinate Professor at University of Porto, Portugal. And I am Sinararaj, the Moritz Professor of Engineered Systems at Villanova University and Director of VCAT's Villanova Center for Analytics of Dynamic Systems welcome gentlemen
2: so so good morning everyone uh, it's just a pleasure to be here today uh, i'm bala balachandar of the University of maryland uh, so being in mechanics mechanical engineering uh, when this epi- when this epidemic unfolded uh, for us uh, thought was how, to, how could we best contribute to it uh, so sometime in March uh, 2020, uh, we were looking initial reaction, at least uh, for me, and talked to my group was to see if we could use our background delay differential dynamics to bear upon this problem. Uh, then when we looked at what was happening, uh, we looked at statistical models as a way one could make predictions. So we went to look at the literature and saw that uh, that's had a long history starting with Pierre-François Host and later Richards, uh, so we used a generalized logistic function model initially, uh, and then that we found was able to capture well uh, how the epidemic uh, unfolded, at least the infection dynamics unfolded, uh, if you were in a local county or a state, and uh, for much uh, larger regions like a country or, or the globe, which uh, we found that the multiple faces needed some kind of uh, differential equation model is when we embarked on the extended compartmental model. Uh, initially, we included the quarantine model, which is not there before that. Uh, but for us, a key uh, aspect that we thought uh, we were one of the first to include was the distributed delays, so being at the incubation period or the period between quarantine and recovery and so forth. Uh, so this allowed us to capture how a particular individual's response could be different from another in a population. So this, uh, we used to make both short-term and long-term forecasts. Uh, so right now in the US, uh, we have had about eight phases, if you will, starting from end of March of last year. And uh, right now, our goal is to answer the question like, when would this epidemic be like a seasonal flow? So those are the type of questions we trying to
3: answer right now. Thank you.
0: That's great, um, uh, Tenreiro. You want to say something okay. about
3: modeling? Okay. Yeah. Hello, uh, everybody. My name is Tenreiro Machado from Porto, Portugal. I'm an electrical engineer, and uh, I've been working on a modeling of systems, mainly nonlinear models and complex systems. Uh, I started also many years ago in fractional calculus uh, that has very interesting properties of non-locality and long uh, effect uh, of memory. And uh, so uh, my interest in the COVID-19 was, uh, let's say, due to the emergence of the world uh, spread. And uh, therefore I decided to apply some of the tools that I am used to apply in other data series in other phenomena to this kind of uh, problem that we have nowadays and uh, I, I have been using uh, uh, oh, i started using the let's say the classical modeling techniques based on mathematics whatever be the tools and uh, in the last years i started also to use uh, Uh, data analysis. We are in the world of digital uh, information and you have uh, what we never had before uh, big data and uh, I I don't uh, say that uh, I am a big data scientist. I believe that the name is not the correct one and I am not also in that area but I think that uh, we are at the uh, starting era where uh, data and computer may be uh, an alternative language to mathematics i mean alternative in the sense they complement each other so we can have models uh, let's say computational models not mathematical models but computational models so i think that uh, a kind of symbiosis between the two at the present development of technology and science is probably a good strategy so I was curious about the COVID-19 and I started uh, to apply models of data mining, clustering and uh, so on to the data from all around the world about COVID. And I think I got some interesting results and uh, I still think that it's a good tool because uh, we have a lot of, uh, let's say, phenomena that such as the for example, the variation of characteristics of the virus with different variants or the variation of the psychological attitude of population due to some fatigue uh, being confined or even to variations due to political uh, uh, breaks. So uh, I think that uh, uh, data analysis is not uh, the only tool but is also an interesting tool.
0: Thank you, Tanrero. Gergely, uh, Gerge, you want to say something?
1: Yeah, so thank you very much for, for inviting me to this discussion. Uh, so I'm a mathematician from the University of Szeged in Hungary. And interestingly, my background is also in delay differential equations. Uh, I've written my PhD on this topic, and then I took a postdoc in Canada at... Uh, Center for Disease Modeling at York University in Toronto, and I started to work on infectious disease modeling, uh, so 15 years ago. And uh, we have now a group in Sega at our department working on infectious disease modeling. And actually, we started to work on COVID-19 very early, back in January. And first, uh, we looked at uh, potential for global spread when we have just seen a few imported cases in various countries from uh, travelers from china uh, and then later uh 19 modeling and epidemiological analysis response team was assembled in hungary uh it's a quiet diverse group multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary group of different experts we have a working group on uh, data science we have working with epidemiologists so we have an epidemiologist team we have the uh, modeling team we have uh, a team to develop agent-based models we have uh, statisticians and so on Uh, so and ever since then we work very closely with policymakers. since last march uh, on, on a daily basis, we're doing an analysis and uh, various reports to the government, and uh, yeah. So first, we, uh, we analyze the situation, trying to make uh, forecast what's going to happen. We, we investigate scenarios for different possible interventions. What is the current interest is, of course, uh, the emergence of this new variants. And also now we are in a race with our vaccination program and the spread of this new variants. So we're trying to put together a plan for future relaxation of the measures, which we have in place at the moment. But this is now very, very volatile situation because we don't have a very good monitoring of the of the new variants. So it should be very, uh, very interesting to see in the coming months, how this race between the vaccination and the spread of the new variant will unfold.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Gergay. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, just talk a couple of minutes about, uh, you know, our own work here at Villanoma, where I'm a professor and I direct a research center called VCATS. Um, so what we did was we looked at the, and I com- my background is mechanical engineering like Bala uh, in mechanics. And uh, so it's, you know, to me, it was just a set of differential equations. So we had to do, unlike you, Gergay, we had to really figure out what this is all about, you know, what, 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 what even these parameters mean. So we looked at a differential equation model, but what we did was we modified that um, to model, mathematically model government action and uh, public reaction, social reactions. So we were interested in uh, basically seeing, you know, uh, what trying to predict how the policy decisions decisions would make an impact on the mathematical results. So uh, the idea was, you know, can we manipulate the variables to get the reproduction number less than one, right? We know that that's the key, key parameter. Also, I think we wanted to see, can we expand our in- fundamental insight uh, using nonlinear dynamic principles? So... Couple of things we did, which are probably different from standard models, uh, we we kind of modeled that uh, because in infectious people can be contagious before they show symptoms. Uh, we modified the SCIR models, what's called the SCIR model, by introducing you know two different parameters to model contact with susceptibles with infected and exposed, and then we introduced sort of a new um, a new state variable to model social uh, dynamics uh, because the public reaction has. Uh, uh, Tenreiro mentioned, and uh, it can change with time. And it reacts to, for example, the number of infected people. Um, of course, it also has a cultural context we didn't really consider. And um, we also put in a um, in government action or policy, and we assume the transmission rate is modified by things like mask mandates, workplace restrictions, and so on. And uh, we started to work on this back in probably April. So then the best data was really coming from... Um, South Korea at the time. Um, so we ended up using South Korean data to fit our model. And, uh, you know, they also had did fairly broad uh, testing, which is another issue maybe we can talk about, um, but how good is the data. Uh, and that had very clear government policies. So to kind of cut this short, uh, we found sort of fairly standard things that you would expect. For example, we found that government action and social behavior are both necessary to control the epidemic. Uh, But some of the non-obvious findings we found um, that we had were that exposed individuals have a greater impact than infected individuals on the transmission of the disease, perhaps because you don't know that they're transmitting the disease. Uh, But, you know, it actually came out of the mathematics. And uh, another interesting uh, finding was that there is a minimum threshold value for the government response uh, for you to completely control the epidemic studies, uh, you know, they, and therefore to vanquish the epidemic equilibrium that you would get. So several small tentative steps is not as effective as bolder and significant steps. And of course, you know, this we found early in the uh, last year, but uh, some of the experience kind of bears it out. Uh, for example, a lot of the, especially principalities in you know, in the US have had this staccato response which has not been as as effective as countries like China and South Korea and Singapore and so on. So I'm interested in uh, kind of uh, exploring this further with you. And maybe we can uh, just start talking about modeling because I think, like I said, all of us are into models uh, and we know that the earliest models are about a hundred years old. Actually, when I was doing research on this, I found that Bernoulli had actually developed a model for epidemics uh, way back and just, uh, of course, there's nothing that he did not do. Um, but the Kermack and McHendrick model is well known, you know, it's about a hundred years old, uh, which we have the, you know, compartment models. Um, so can we talk about the spectrum of models that exist today and, um, you know, the comparisons and how we may work with them, you know, uh, pros and cons, uh, traditional models, compartment models, distributed models, parameter versus database models that Tendero, uh referred to, uh, fractional order um modeling, you know, how does it affect things? Stochasticity, I think uh, Bala has done some work on stochastic modeling. Um, Should you be, uh, what's the, maybe Gergit can talk about the, you know, the detail that we need, you know, do we need to break it up into different age groups, maybe different blood types, which have shown different susceptibility, um, different regions or countries, comorbidities, right? So there are all these uh, you know, w- what should the models be constrained.
2: Yeah, I think maybe I could take a first crack at it. I think if what is just it, it interested in the gross numbers or to try to understand what the public policy measures might, uh, uh, how they might influence something, maybe a statistical model might work well, but if one needs to tease out parameters that like the infection rate beta or reproduction number R0 that you mentioned, one would need a more parametric model to discern those type of information. And uh, second, I think uh, the point that Tendero made about data, that's very important. I think uh, modeling is not something that's sufficient to capture everything that goes on. Uh, so for us, uh, it's both the uh, forward dynamics and inverse dynamics. Uh, so we will need to identify even how many faces that there are in terms of the evolution itself. Uh, for example, the U.S., whenever we had a crowd gathering across the country, we found that infection rates spiked up after a few days. So there are those type of things. Uh, one needs to have a data-driven model uh, in concert uh, with the data that we get. Of course, a bigger question that one might ask is what about neural networks? Uh, I think neural networks are attractive, but I. I I feel like right now uh, it's more like a black box type of approach when one uses them. The number of parameters that one needs the neural network is quite quite huge compared to what one might have with a model like what we have used. So one has to use them with care, but at the same time, those are attractive, again, to capture things that we cannot. Uh, A big thing for us, the modeling, is how do we capture the influence of public policies like masking or social distancing or even a rally having them and not having them and so those things have been helpful at the campus level uh, we would look at the daily increment rate and see when the tail is falling off if the tail is a long tail or a short tail at least to help the policymakers decide when they should reopen campus, so those are again very useful insights we could glean from the model itself uh, hmm. thank you
3: well maybe uh, now well uh, I think that the mathematical models are uh, obviously uh, a good point to start and you have um, many types of models well the, the, uh, the let's say Mathematical models. Well, uh, in my opinion, uh, those models work very fine for systems that uh, are, let's say, well-behaved. That is to say, uh, well, uh, where the phenomena are all well-observable and measured. And uh, note that at COVID 19 we cannot observe really uh, in real time, let's say, the phenomena because there is a delay between the infection and the, the let's say the demonstration uh, by some measure of the infection takes about two weeks let's say so uh, and the, whatever we measure in a population as big as a country we cannot find everyone and so the measure as uh, let's say many, many errors or many imperfections. So um, I find that in this kind of phenomena some uh, approach like in complex systems, uh, that is to say uh, where several tools are used simultaneously uh, may be more reliable. And uh, I have been working with uh, clustering techniques in particular with the multidimensional scaling, where you can, uh, let's say, capture the information in many dimensions, and then, uh, let's say, make an in- an intelligent projection in a lower dimensional space, because in fact, it's, uh, that point is the same problem as with mathematical modeling. You can increase the complexity of a mathematical model by including this phenomena, that phenomena. This uh, parameter that is not fixed and varies in time, that delay and whatever. But the more complicated uh, the model becomes, the more difficult is to get a, let's say, clear conclusion. And that's why in control systems and in modeling, we have model reduction uh, of the complexity. And moreover, the more parameters, the more complicated is the model. Usually the more sensitive, the more sensible is the, the, the model to some variations or to some error in measurement or whatever. So uh, it's, a, a, of course, a reliable approach in the classical terms. But for complex systems with many variables and many, let's say, difficult to understand phenomena, uh, often we get uh, Uh, not uh, a good, uh, let's say, a good perspective of what is going on. So I am using multidimensional scaling where you can take advantage of many measurements. Although, unfortunately, in what concerns COVID-19, usually governments only look at the infection and at the mortality. Uh, But I believe it should be learned a lesson to measure more things. The gender, the age, uh, many things, so that uh, the information captured in, let's say, many dimensions will give a much better, uh, let's say, state of what is going on.
0: This is a good point for us to take a break. We'll be right back after this announcement. You are listening to Nodicast, a lively podcast on nonlinear dynamics, covering the latest research on new methods, exciting applications, and breakthroughs. I'm C. Nadaraj from Villanova University, your host. Nodicast is an outreach of nonlinear dynamics, the journal published by Springer Nature. So Gerga, you I think you have all of us you have a, a very extensive experience in uh, modeling, especially infectious diseases. We interested in to, interested in hearing your perspective
1: yeah, sure, so it's very interesting. you mentioned uh, Bernoulli's work about smallpox inoculation. actually, it was from seventeen sixty six and what Bernoulli did uh, he determined the uh, prevalence age specific prevalence uh of an infectious disease and calculated the uh, the life gain life year gain we can get from removing or reducing uh, the level of infection in the population and not much happened since bernoulli's work for more than 100 years Math- nobody had the idea to apply mathematics to infectious diseases uh, until early 20th century and you mentioned kermack mckendrick's model but around the same time, there was also uh, Ronald Ross's famous model on, on malaria. Uh, what he developed, uh, compartmental model to monitor the, not only the human infected and susceptible human, but also mosquito populations. Mm-hmm. And of course, in uh, in terms of compartmental models, we most models are we can think of uh, generalizations or descendants of these two ross mcdonald model or kem mckendrick models so of course you can add as you mentioned uh also you can add many more details or, or tailor the models to a current situation like one one you mentioned was uh including a pre-symptomatic phase when uh, individuals don't show symptoms but already infectious which is a key factor for for COVID 19. uh so to to what direction you go with adding more details or adding generalizations it depends very much on the question you want to answer so you of course if you're interested in uh, effect of school closures or uh, various measures directed towards uh, protecting the elderly population of course you have to include age uh, and age groups uh if you interested in say effect of contact tracing and quarantine, then this pre-symptomatic phase is very important. You may be also interested in effect of travel restrictions. And of course you have to consider spatial components somehow, which you can do in different ways, introducing more uh, patches or connected populations. Uh, So you can go different directions with adding more and more details. So it depends very much on on the question you, hmm. Or the insight you want to gain. Uh, of course, now we're interested in vaccination. Uh, so we need to add vaccinated compartments. Now we have different vaccines with one dose, two doses. We need slightly different uh, components in your model if you want it. Or if you have more strains, like the new variants, you want to include a possibility of getting infected by different types of the virus. Uh, yeah, so you can add more and more details and in, in terms of compartmental models, of course, we have more and more compartments. If you want, if you have, say, 15 age groups in your model, if you multiply the number of compartments by 15, you have uh, five spatial locations, you multiply the number of compartments with five. If you have space and age, you already at uh, hundreds of compartments very quickly. Uh, so how far you go with this? It's kind of, you have to make a compromise where you stop and this level of detail is sufficient for me to to understand the question uh, i, I want to get insight about or you want to answer and of course there is the complete uh, opposite approach when you start from individual levels and there are many computational models agent-based models or network models uh, when the main modeling components are individuals and what we we usually do is we so, we have a group working on this kind of extending these compartmental models. There's a, a separate group working on agent based models. Actually, we had, we had uh, they created a, a simulation for our cities so again. Uh, 600, uh, one, uh, 160,000 uh, citizens we have in the city, plus 25,000 commuters. So, they have 185,000 agents moving around mm-hmm. in. Uh, in the city, and we have uh, a very fine uh, demographic resolution of where they live. Also, we have data from how they move between different districts of the city. Uh, and there are 3,000 institutions, including schools, stores, workplaces, and so on, where they can go and spend some time. So it's very it's a small city, but the model is very detailed.
0: So can I ask a question about that? Yes, sure. Uh, That's very interesting. So maybe touching upon what the problem Tenrero said, as you increase the number of variables uh, and the the detail, you know, the the question becomes uh, how good are your parameter values? And, uh, you know, um, so, uh, you know, and how good is your data that's feeding that model? Yeah,
1: so of course, compartmental model generally requires much less parameters. Really? And uh, so what we, we usually do is we match the output from compartmental model and the agent-based model and discuss between the two groups how they give different outputs or not. If if we see significant differences, we try to find the reason. So maybe some parameters don't match, but there is something not included in the compartmental model, but it's in the agent-based which makes the difference, and things like that. So So generally, I think it's useful to look at models from using different approaches and even mm-hmm. better from independent groups. Uh, so not not influencing each other uh, so directly. And we also discuss with the epidemiologists on a very mm-hmm. regular basis if it makes sense to them or, or uh, we try to explain what is included in the model and what is not and they get feedback that this this is important, this is not so important for them. So uh, I think for the the present present pandemic, the two two major challenges are, they've already mentioned, uh, is the public response to this pandemic, which was uh, unprecedented and is changing all the time, especially over the long time period, which we are now in uh, nearly a year now in this pandemic so this makes uh i think forecasts very difficult uh, and and they also they influence policy decisions how the public mm-hmm. feels about the epidemic if people are really scared that influences politicians to impose stricter measures and if people have the opposite opinion that they think they we taking it too far then even politicians may relax the measures even when it's not uh, following from epidemiological considerations, just from the sense of the people. So, uh, for example, just to mention one example, uh, even in Hungary, there were back in back last spring, last uh, end of March last year, uh, social distancing measures were introduced, but the movement and the contact number of the people. Were already reduced two weeks before the measures were actually implemented. There was nobody. There was a period of time when it was not mandatory to stay at home, but actually people stayed at home. The streets were empty. So, so how you predict such a behavior? And then, then later, uh, actually towards the end of summer, when people should have should have been much more careful. And the, first, the second wave already started to spread, people were still very careless. Uh, and they went to the, all the touristic places were completely full. They went to the beaches, to the parties, and so on. So it's just kind of the opposite. The-
0: yeah. <laughs> then- well, people's response sometimes is, uh, you know, oscillatory because they, yeah they overreact, right? They over sometimes and then they underreact when, uh, in response to what's going on. So.
1: Yeah, it can create interesting oscillatory behavior. Yes. So we looked yes. at that. Sort of. yes. So that,
0: uh, that's a good segue to talking about oscillations and uh, we are clearly seeing, you know, periodic, uh, periodicity in the uh, infections. Um, and this was observed, you know, back, uh, uh, for example, in the Spanish flu uh, and, of course, unvaccinated measles, you know, it's full of these uh, peaks. Um, so is this, um, you know, so does anybody have an insight on this? I, I know it's a lot of different things have been attributed. Uh, uh, it's been attributed to different causes. Uh, one of them is just this, what we're talking about. For example, I think the Spanish flu was uh, related to children being in school. So there was actually this periodicity based on when they were in school, then they're not in school, if I remember correctly. Um, Is that what we're seeing right now? Or is that something, you know, predictable? Or is it more like a a natural, you know, like something like a half-bifurcation which happens, which has been shown to happen with uh, nonlinear incident rates? Uh, Any
2: comments on this? Well, I think, uh, at least in terms of the data that we're looking at, uh, it's clear that uh, you could see a seven-week cycle. The weekends show up when there's not much activity, not people not going around, we could see clearly changes corresponding to the seven-day week. The second aspect, uh, the oscillations... Uh,
0: so that is the high-frequency component.
2: High-frequency component, right. So if you look at, that's why probably even in the media, the report, they talk about seven-day averages yeah. that takes away this frequency. But if you had to look at much broader time scales, uh, in terms of years and such, you had to look at the seasonal variation. So there, there are models by Dietz in uh, 76 where he talks about the disease models uh, where the seasonal variation could be described by periodic function, harmonic function. So those could help. And if one took those type of things into account, you could clearly see uh, bifurcations in your response. And uh, that is something that you would need for long-term forecasting, at least Uh, in our our opinion. That's that's what you're finding out.
3: Well, uh, uh, my opinion is that, uh, of course, uh, uh, I tested uh, uh, quite a few data for all around the world, and uh, almost everywhere at weekend or uh, with one day delay i say the virus take holidays because <laughs> you at uh, uh, at sunday you have the results from friday so they are still reliable but then uh, sunday monday usually very low numbers so uh, i say the virus goes to make some holidays weekend holidays or whatever <laughs> and uh, so of course there's the, the only meaning is that the people that collect the data and so forth is not working <laughs> as for the rest of the week so that has uh, only that uh, meaning uh, in my opinion now in the long run i tested i was as i was saying data from all around the world and uh, people were talking about first wave and second wave and I found the word very misleading because first it's not a wave as we think of in uh, limit cycles, uh, whatever. But uh, each country had almost a different one and I saw many different countries. So at the United States was one type, but Germany was another type, but Italy, so there was no clear similarities in the evolution in time. Of course, we can find some underlying reasons that we say they have a common uh, reason. But the the, the variation in time were not what we call uh, uh, usually uh, waves or oscillations or limit cycles. And uh, furthermore, they were very different from each country to each country, even in Europe, if you compare the Germany or Italy or Spain or UK, you get completely different variations in time. So uh, I would say complex dynamics, I wouldn't call them waves, okay? And uh, for some, it seems some, uh, uh, let's say cycle or limit cycles during some time, but uh, I couldn't generalize. Say it's this type for almost all countries.
0: Gerge, you have a um, perspective on this?
1: Yes, uh, what's uh, I'm referring to a very interesting study that was done in Hungary. Uh, genomic sequencing of the viruses from I will call it first wave and second wave for now <laughs> in Hungary because it it turned out that the the second wave. Uh, was they, the viruses spreading around in the second wave are not descendants of those from the first wave. So, wow. so they were introduced during the summer uh, reintroduced to the country during the summer from abroad. So in that sense, the two two outbreaks we have seen it was a small outbreak, very small in the spring and a very large in the fall and the winter and just uh, still being in that. In, in that sense, they are two different entities. So it's not just a continuation of the first one. It's really a different one.
0: So, so I would have a follow-up question to that. So if you look at a country like New Zealand, which I think was very effective at locking down, you would probably not see a second wave unless, unless it was due to mutation. Is that, does that make sense? It's not coming in from anywhere else.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's very difficult to sustain this uh, yeah. uh, this very very efficient and strict uh, border control for a very long time. So yeah,
0: yeah that's also true. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think
2: uh, when, so, when, when we talked about waves initially, uh, you know, I was looking at more of the geographical spreading of the virus itself, starting from Asia to Europe and then U.S., Brazil, and India. Uh, so one one aspect, even going back to U.S., uh, the wave was much more in terms of periods in which there was an increase in the daily increment rate. And so in the U.S., at least there uh, are three such uh, happenings. So so I think it's a very country-dependent. It's also location-dependent on how you use the word. Uh, I agree with Tenero, it's misleading in some ways. Uh, One aspect one could think about, at least being for mechanics, uh, it's much more a partial viewpoint, is this idea of fired elements. Uh, Fired elements is something that we use to describe systems where we focus on spatially what happens within that region. Uh, So you could do the same with this uh, disease epidemics too, with each country being a region of interest, which there's a particular model that one uses. uh, At a higher level, you have one model, then at the state level, you have another Model and then a local level, you have another model. So one could think of it also like in you know, a find element sense as to how one might describe the evolution of these dynamics.
0: Yeah. So is that maybe akin to the multiscale model that Tendero was talking about?
2: Multiscale, uh, in the sense that it's spatial scales. Yeah. It's, it's in that.
0: So you're talking spatial scale, like we do with, yeah.
2: And then within the spatial regions, you could add temporal scales. So that could have scales on both sides. Yeah.
0: So, so I'm I'm curious to know. Um, uh, I I don't know if this work has been done on this, but if you the you look at the huge discrepancy in the way different countries have had you know cases and uh, uh, and especially I was thinking of India. Um, India has you know not uh, been so as socially distanced as you would think. It's very erratic the way it's been um, followed by the public, even though the government policy was consistent but they seem to have um, far lower infection rates uh, than, for example, US, uh, you know, per population. Um, is there any, anything in the modeling that perhaps could be explored to, you know, um, study this?
2: I think, you know, what you're you know, getting at is probably uh, immunity, right? The immunity level of a particular population, how does it play to the modeling itself? So,
0: so, so maybe you think it's immunity. Yeah. I think this is a good point to stop and take a breather. I wish to thank Bala Balachandran, Gergely Rost and Tenreiro Machado for a very engaging and informative panel discussion on the nonlinear dynamics of COVID-19. This marks the end of part one of this conversation. Please do tune in to Nodicast episode two for a continuation of this exciting discussion. Also, you may want to delve into the papers that we and many others have published for all the mathematical and technical details. The theme music is called Dynamic. It was composed by Stephen William Cornish and was crafted for us by Neha Nararaj. Expert podcast editing and final production was carried out by Helena Ernst, a media studies expert in training at Villanova University. Nodicast is supported by a generous grant from Springer Nature. We appreciate it very much. We also wish to thank support and encouragement from Professor La Carbonara, the Editor-in-Chief. I'm C. Nadaraj from Villanova University, your host of Nodicast. For more details, including links to panelists and papers, please visit the website nodicast.org. Thank you, folks, for spending the better part of the hour listening to us. Now go read some nonlinear dynamics papers.